Today we're starting a new journey together. We ended a wonderful journey starting off the new year in a sermon series that we had entitled uh, Growing in God's Presence, and we talked for over seven weeks about what it means to be living in the presence of God. Now to kind of mix things up a little bit, we're actually going to choose a a book of the Bible and stick with it from the first word to the final one. And uh, the Spirit of God has led me uh, to pick the book of Ruth for us to be walking through together. So I'd like to title this new sermon series, Redeeming Love. Redeeming Love. And we're going to walk through uh, probably about six or seven weeks walking through this beautiful book. It's a short book, but there's a whole lot of meat on the bone. Uh, you'll see in your bulletin a, uh, an overview of the book of Ruth. This is perfectly sized to stick inside your Bible and just refer to it as we walk through this together. I won't read it to you, uh, just in your own time. I do want to draw your attention to one thing, and this is where I want our hearts to be as we go through the book of Ruth. The last thing on the back of the outline says this, basically that Ruth is a human love story where ordinary people find redemption from tragedy and a divine love story where God's people find redemption from sin. That's the heartbeat of this whole book. Okay, and there's a human element and there's a divine element and you can't separate one from the other. All right. So for people who read the book of Ruth at face value, they see this beautiful love story that we're going to talk about these next few weeks. And they, 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 they don't see the big picture of God's ultimate love for us. But sometimes there's theologians that get so deep into the, the way that this story points to Jesus that they miss the actual beauty of the actual love between a, a man and a woman. So don't separate those two. As we go through Ruth the next six or seven weeks, recognize that there's a human element of love, but it does point to the beautiful divine element of love that God has for us as He has also redeemed us through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. And we're going to start off uh, our first portion of the book of Ruth, looking at just the first six verses. The title of our message here this morning is picking up the broken pieces, picking up the broken pieces. And as we as we prepare our hearts and our minds for the setting, for the context of the beginning of this story, we have to talk about the word brokenness. And you know what? Everyone in this room is qualified to understand what that word means. I promise you are. If you're a human being and you've got air in your lungs, you know what brokenness is. In fact, I'm going to start off with something to think about. And instead of a question, I just want to make a statement. Here's the statement that I want to make. I want us to think about this. The reality of sin forces every human being at every age to deal with brokenness. You cannot avoid brokenness. You can't you can't avoid it. I don't care how old you are. I don't care where you're from. I don't care what family you live in. Okay, I I just you are broken because you were born into a broken world. In our brokenness, sometimes we look at others who think that they're better off than we are, that they haven't experienced the brokenness that we have. But we never know what it's like, what it's truly like to walk in another person's shoes, except to say that they're broken in some way, too. And I want to prove it to you just by real quickly talking about every age group that's represented in the sanctuary here this morning. Let's start with children. You know, I I learned this years ago. You don't have to teach a child to be scared of the dark. You know why? Because they automatically know without you ever teaching them, there's a reason to be scared. That darkness that hides what the world is doing, there's a reason to be scared of the broken and dark world that they're trying to go to sleep in. So brokenness starts even as a child crying out in the darkness of their bedroom. They know the world is not quite right. Then we move to the to the teenage years. Okay, 
teenagers experience their first deep wounds. Okay, maybe the broken heart of the first uh, teenage romance. And we, we smile about that now, but it's not funny when you're going through it as a teenager. Uh, I remember the first heartbreak that I had. I was absolutely train wrecked for a long time because my heart wasn't ready for it. And what about the first death that you experience in someone that you love as a teenager? Can you remember where you were when you experienced death firsthand for the first time? How broken you felt? I remember the first funeral I went to in the third grade for my Aunt Teresa. And I just remember the song that was on the radio. I remember the way that the sanctuary smelled. I remember a lot of things. It was, I, I tasted brokenness and death for the first time. Okay, then you get, uh, let's talk about young adults. Okay, you're getting into your career. You're getting married. You're, you're finding your true purpose and identity but you might be finding them in the wrong places. People who seek their identity outside of God find that jobs don't quite fulfill. They find that spouses can't quite fulfill. And so they wrestle with thinking, man, I thought when I got married and got into this job, I'd finally be happy. Now I'm married and I have this job. And guess what? I'm not happy. And they're seeking fulfillment and they're broken and they don't know how to fix what is broken. That's how I came to salvation when I was 27 and living in a a job that you know, that I thought should be perfect working in professional sports as an announcer. I thought it would make me happy and it made me miserable because it could not fill an emptiness in my heart that only God could fill. And then we, we of course, look at uh, the seniors. The seniors are starting to experience brokenness in a physical way because their physical bodies and their minds are not cooperating for the first time. And they can't do the things that they used to do. And every time they get up and feel the aches and pains, they're reminded my body is broken. It's not what it should be. Sin is taking over. This, this is part of the fall. This is part of the, the nature that we live in because of the original sin of Adam and Eve. When sin entered the world, brokenness entered the world. And we have been wrestling with it ever since. We wrestle with brokenness. You know, I, I'll tell you the, the first time I really remember thinking about this is before I got saved, actually. Uh, I was a creative writing minor in college at Georgia Southern, and uh, I had my favorite professor of all time uh, who's passed on. His name is Peter Christopher. He was a young man. Uh, He's probably in his 40s when he taught me, and he passed away in his early 50s from cancer. Peter Christopher used to write uh, for the crime beat in the New York Times. He was a fantastic writer, uh, and he helped me so much. But I used to write these stories for my creative writing classes, and in those stories, I used to have these big happy endings and I would try to, to the story to have as little conflict as possible. I would try to have a little bit of conflict and a big happy ending. And he would hand the story back to me and write on the story, not realistic, not realistic, not realistic. And, and I, I would say, I came up to him one day, I said, what do you mean not realistic? And he used this expression. It was kind of a little gory, but it made sense. He said, Bo, when I read your story, I'm waiting to see the head in the freezer. Where's the head in the freezer? And I said, what do you mean by that? He said, we live in a broken world, and we, when we hear stories, we connect with the brokenness. You're, there's no brokenness in your story, therefore your happy ending's not realistic because your conflict is not realistic. And I never thought about it that way, and now I see it everywhere. You cannot, think about this, there's not one movie that you've ever watched, there's not one TV show that you've ever watched, where the beginning, the middle, and the end was all happy. There is no story without conflict in this side of heaven, and not even in child cartoons. In fact, it's interesting to me now. I see things a little bit differently when I'm with my, my daughter and I watch Mickey Mouse Clubhouse. I think, I wonder what conflict they're going to get into, and I wonder how fast they're going to get out of it. 
I mean, seriously, even Mickey Mouse has got to deal with the arrogant Donald Duck. He's got to deal with Minnie Mouse, who's a little flighty. You know, there's all kinds of weird things happening. And in 25 minutes, he brings it back. You know what I mean? You think I'm crazy. Next time you watch any show at all, whether it's cartoons with your children, all right, whether it's sitcoms with your friends, whether it's movies with your family, you watch every single plot line that you'll ever watch has to have major conflict and then resolution. Why is that? Because you're living in the middle of a story that is filled with conflict. And if you're a Christian, you've been promised a happy ending. So it's hardwired in your heart. You can't avoid it. That's the plot line that we live in every day. We're broken people, but we're also broken people worshiping a healing Savior. And so what's our big idea? As we walk into the beginning of the book of Ruth, we're going to see ground level, rock bottom brokenness. A brokenness that I believe many people in this room can understand and connect with. So in one sentence, here's the big idea I want to wrap our minds around as we get ready to start this sermon series in the book of Ruth. I would say that we are broken people who live in a broken world, but we have hope in a healing God who picks up our broken pieces and puts us back together. Let me say that again. We are broken people who live in a broken world, but we have hope in a healing God who picks up our broken pieces and puts us back together again. That's the tone I want to set as we enter a new series and a new book. And that's certainly the tone that we're going to see as we look through uh, chapter 1, verses 1 through 6. So if you have a Bible, please turn with me to the book of Ruth. Okay, very close to the beginning of the Scriptures. you got Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, and then Ruth. If you don't have a Bible, please turn to the Pew Bible in front of you, page 262 in your Pew Bible. If you would stand at this time out of the reverence of the reading of God's holy, infallible, inerrant word, we're going to be reading Ruth, again, chapter 1, verses 1 through 6. Hear God's word to us, starting in verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malan and Chilion. They were Ephraimites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there, but Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other was Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malan and Chilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Now verse 6, Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. Let us pray together. Gracious Heavenly Father, we love you. Father, we love you and we thank you and we praise you for this day that you've made. But Father, we come to you confessing that we are broken. We have had lives that have been torn apart by sin for so many different reasons, Father. And we come into the sanctuary broken this morning. Broken over relationships, broken over finances, broken over jobs, broken over death of loved ones. We're broken. 
And we stand before you naked and broken, Father, asking that you would help us to see and have and embrace and be changed by hope. A hope that can come only from you. So, Father, I pray that you would be with us today and as we walk through this book of Ruth the next few weeks together and help us to see how great a God you are to pick up our broken pieces. Let us enter into this story of brokenness knowing that you are the one that waits. You are the one that heals. You are the one that gives hope. Help us, we pray. In Jesus' name, God's people said, Amen. Alright, so as we start here in the book of Ruth, we've got to set the context for where we are. Okay? Where we are in the history of the nation of Israel in the Old Testament, if we don't get there, it won't make a whole lot of sense. So let me take a deep breath. And let me start from the beginning. And let's put our mind right in the world of the book of Ruth. Okay? All right, so we talked about this a lot in our prospective member class this morning. If you've never read the Old Testament or if it's been a long time since you read the Old Testament, here's kind of a quick snapshot. God, who loves humanity in such a way, wanted to reveal to the world who he was because after sin, after Adam and Eve sinned and were kicked out of the garden, the world was so sinful and so lost, they did not know there was one true God. So God started with a promise. And that promise was made to Abraham. And what he said to Abraham was, you are a man of faith and based on your faith, I will bless you by pulling out a holy nation from your lineage. From your lineage, I will create a holy nation that is as numerous as the stars in the sky and the seas on the, or the sand on the seashores. And I'm going to make this a holy nation. And when they see this nation and how holy they are as set apart from the rest of the world, they'll look at them, but they'll think of me. God to start, God decided when he wanted to reveal himself to the world, he would start through a nation. So he made the promise to Abraham. And Abraham had a beautiful, blessed child named Isaac in his old age. And Isaac had a son named Jacob. And Jacob had 12 sons. Now, Jacob was renamed Israel because he wrestled with God. I always said I, I, I would love to have been a fly on the wall for that pay-per-view event. All right. He wrestled with God and survived by the grace of God. And they renamed him Israel, meaning wrestling with God. And so then he had 12 sons, and those 12 sons became known as the 12 tribes of Israel. And when those sons had families, those tribes started to grow. And one of those 12 sons was Joseph. And Joseph was sold into slavery out to Egypt. But in the providence of God, God blessed him and he became a leader in Egypt. And eventually the whole family followed him to Egypt. And then that's where the family was for hundreds of years, and they grew, but they were also put into slavery by the Egyptian ruler, the Pharaoh. All right, And when Pharaoh was ruling them, God raised up Moses to go and set them free. So they're freed into the wilderness, and for 40 years, they're promised this promised land of milk and honey, but they live in disobedience, and they keep walking in circles for 40 years until finally one day they get to the edge of the promised land, and Moses dies, and Joshua takes the torch, and Joshua leads them into the promised land, and the 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 sons of Jacob, the families that were birthed the hundreds of years after those 12 sons, they finally settle in the land, the, the land of Canaan, the land of milk and honey, and they start living as a nation. Now here's what happens. After the book of Joshua, into the book of Judges, we find out things start going south. They start living in significant disobedience. And that's where we find ourselves in the book of Ruth. 
All right. We're in a season of severe disobedience for the nation of Israel, and they're being disciplined for their disobedience. In fact, if you ever read the book of Judges, there's a cycle that happens over and over and over again. Here's the cycle. The people of God are living in blessing and rest, but then they forget God and they start living in disobedience and they're punished. And in the midst of their punishment, they cry out for forgiveness and restoration, and God sends them a judge, a redeemer, who redeems them from the, 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 the ravaging of their sin, and all of a sudden they're restored and they're blessed again, and then they forget God and start sinning again. And the cycle happens over and over and over again. And that's where we are as we enter into the book of Ruth. All right, so what I want to look at, starting with the first two verses, I want to take a big snapshot of brokenness, and I want to start by looking at the nation of Israel, and then we'll kind of break it down to a family that's broken, and then we'll end our time together with a woman that's broken. All right, so number one, let's look at the portrait of a broken nation. The portrait of a broken nation. Verses one through two says this. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the, man, and the name of his wife Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malan and Chilion. They were Ephraimites from Bethlehem and Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. All right, now here's the key. Look at the beginning of verse 1. It says, in the days when the judges ruled. So we know this, the narrative, the story begins during the time of the judges. And we know that things were not good in the book of Judges. I'm going to share just two verses that set the tone for what this was like. Okay, one is Judges chapter 2, verses 10 through 11. Judges chapter 2, verses 10 through 11 says this. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers, meaning generations died. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. And then Judges chapter 21, verse 25 is a good theme for the whole book. It says, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That means that this is a point in the history of Israel where people just got chaotic. They abandoned God. They forgot who he was. They forgot what he did. They started doing what they thought was right. And they were just, they no longer represented who God was. They were supposed to be holy and set apart and live according to the ordinances of the commandments and supposed to be people that, uh, the rest of the world would look at and say, there must be a God because only God could do what they do. Only God could give them the power that they have. But they sinned and they turned away from God and they no longer were a faithful witness to God. Now, here's what I want to say before we continue to walk through the passage here. Don't we do the same thing? I want you to stop for a second and I want you to think about how you first became a Christian. Uh, you know, Jody picked the perfect song this morning, My First Love. And how many times in the New Testament do we see God tell, even in the Old Testament, God saying, return to your first love, return to your first love, because it's easy to drift away from your first love. It's easy. I, I wrote in the devotional in your bulletin uh, in, in Hebrews chapter 12, how we run this Christian race. And in the beginning of the race, they put a big number on your on your chest and everybody cheers for you and loves you. And when the, the gun sounds, everyone's cheering and ranting and raving about and so excited that you then have to enter the Christian race. And if you run it long enough, You'll get far enough along in the race where the, the cheering of the crowd dies down to utter silence. And all you can think of is the burning of your lungs. And all you can hear is yourself trying to catch your breath. And you're wondering, how am I running this race? And, and then you just stop running it all together. We've all been there. 
we forget what God has done in our life. We forget it in so many different areas. First, we forget it in our worship. We get saved and get excited and we say that we're going to dedicate our lives to God and then we fall away. All right. And and God saves us in many different ways. For, For all of us who are Christian, God has saved you eternally. All right. But also in an earthly way, there are some of us who have been healed of diseases that we thought were going to kill us. Some of us had, have had near-life death or near-death experiences and been saved from that. Some of us have had financial disaster and God saved us from that. And w- when it happens, we say, man, I'm going to give my life to God. And for a season, we do. And then we forget. And we go back to the same person we always were. We forget what God has done so easily. And we, we worship other things instead of God. For some, it's trust. Okay, I go back to the finances. God miraculously provides, and then all of a sudden, a few weeks later, we completely forget, and we go back to worrying again over and over and over. For some of us, it's a commitment. We say we're going to commit to serving God, and that becomes a reality until something else seems more interesting. All right? You know, the churches are always packed January, February, and March, but come April, when the sun comes out, all of a sudden... You know, and, and by the way, let me just say, I'm not knocking vacations. We all need one, including myself. Okay, those are times where we go out and get refreshed. Even Jesus would get away. But there's a difference between vacation and, and that becoming the actual pursuit of what you, where you want to be and what you want to be doing with your life, leisure. We make a commitment to God, but we stray from that commitment. The world becomes too enticing, and we walk away from Him, and we make other things our God, and we're all guilty of that from time to time. And so we understand this brokenness. You know, the one thing that changes all of this is when we experience pain or tragedy and it leads us to remember how broken we are and how much we need God. There's nothing that will make you snap to like brokenness. There's nothing that will make you run back to God like being at rock bottom and falling into a thousand pieces. It is what God uses, not because he doesn't love us, but precisely because he does. Because if we did not suffer, we would not cling to God the way that we are called to cling to him with every breath we have. And God will use brokenness. You know, as we as we looked at the first few verses here, we see a man named Elimelech. Okay, and Elimelech uh, was a Israelite and he lived in Judah and he left his home because things were not going well. Now, if you are, if you've ever read the book of Ruth, you may beeline it right past that into the story of Ruth. And we're going to get to that in the weeks ahead of the loyalty of Ruth and just the amazing faith of Ruth. But don't miss any of this. This is a huge sin. This is not just some mundane detail that gets you to the heart of the story. This sets the tone and I'll tell you why. Today, if you and I were to leave Cedar Street and go worship at another church, it'd be understandable, okay? There's nothing spiritually different about this church unless this is the church that God called you to serve in. But some of you leave and go to another state. Some of you feel called to another church. And that's not necessarily wrong. Here's where it's wrong for Elimelech. The nation of Israel, the blessing for the people of Israel, had a lot to do with the land they were living in. Those who went to live in the land of milk and honey were promised God's blessings and God's provision, and they trusted in his provision. They were called to live in a special land for a special reason. So when he left the land because things weren't going good and they lived in famine, that was a complete action of disobedience to God. It was saying, I know this was a promised land, and I know that you're a good God, but things ain't working out here, so I'm leaving town. And I'm going to go find another town and I'm going to make it happen for myself. That is complete and total sin, disobedience, and complete amnesia 
for the faith that he was called to have as a Jew, as an Israelite. If we don't stop and look at the verses, we'll miss that. And, and we certainly need to see at the very beginning, this is complete and utter disobedience that he would leave Bethlehem and go to this land of Moab because he thinks he can provide for himself better than God can provide for him. And I want to ask you before we go on to point two, have you drifted and forgotten what God has promised to do in your life if you would just remain faithful to him? Do you still have a hunger to know him like you did when you first got saved? Do you still have a commitment to serve him the way that you said you would when you first got saved? Do you still have an effort? Do you make an effort to obey him when it's hard and the rest of the world says to go one direction, but God says go this way? Do you still remember to trust him when you don't know where the next paycheck is coming? You know, in a lot of ways, as a pastor, you, you spend your days preaching to a choir because I'm saying, are you willing to follow the Lord? And I know it, at least in a preliminary step, all of you are here today. But I will say this. We have a TV ministry, and I'm speaking to those who are probably watching this on Pineland Television right now who haven't darkened the doors of a church in a long time. And what I would say to them, I say to all of us, where have we gone astray from God? There are some of you in this room who are here every week, and yet spiritually you've gone astray. You don't love God like you used to. You don't trust him like you used to. Let's take truth from the song that we sang that Jody led us in here this morning and let's go back to our first love. Let us remember who God is. You know, I don't want a rabbit trail and I know the time is already getting, getting late, but there's a reason in the Old Testament why people pause and renew the covenant and recite what God has already done over and over and over again. You read it in Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy right before uh, Moses dies that he renews what God has already done to prepare for what God is going to do. And the reason why is human beings forget. And we need to take a, a, a chapter out of the book of Ruth here from Elimelech and say, listen, bad things happen when we forget how good God is. So that's the brokenness uh, the portrait of a broken nation. Number two, let's look at the pain of a broken family. Verses three through five says this, but Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of one was Orpah. Okay, not Oprah. Just in case that everyone, every time I've heard somebody read that publicly, I hear Oprah. There's an R in there. I promise it's Orpah. And the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about 10 years and both Malin and Chilean died so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. All right, in the story of Ruth, there's three main characters. There's Naomi, there's Ruth, and there's Boaz. We're going to get to Ruth and Boaz, and that's, that's your happy ending. We're going to get there. We need to start with Naomi, because that's what this first chapter is all about, really. That's what this first passage is all about. It's about Naomi. Because you and I both know in some way, maybe not fully, but in some way, we know what this moment is like. She woke up one day with no husband and no sons. Now, I'm not saying we all know what it means to lose multiple family members like that, but we all know what it is to lose ones that we've loved. And we know the moment that it hits us and the brokenness that we feel. And I want to enter into that moment for a second. You know, God has physiologically wired us in such a way that when we hit moments of tragedy, we have a heightened sense of awareness all around us. God actually created us that way as a survival technique. When you're, when you're in danger or you're in the, in the face of tragedy, all your senses are heightened to try to help you to survive. In, 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 you know, in primitive times, if you were in front of a lion 
You could remember exactly what the lion sounded like. You could remember everything that was around you because God gave you that heightened sense of awareness to get, to get free of the lion and save your own life. But now that we, lived in a, we live in a civilized society, we feel that heightened awareness when we're in moments of tragedy. I'll give you a perfect example. There's not a person in this room over the age of 15 who could not tell you exactly where you were sitting when you found out about 9-11. Right? You know exactly where you were sitting, exactly what TV station you were watching, exactly who you were with. And we also know that about the times that we've heard about ones that we've lost that we loved. 2001 was also the year that I lost my grandfather. He was instilled in great health in his, his late 80s, and he was walking to church in Boca Raton, Florida, and he tripped and fell in the middle of the street and got ran over. I remember exactly where I was when my dad called me. I was sitting on the left edge of my bed in my apartment in college. I remember that day. I remember the light coming through the window. I remember what day of the week it was. Those of you who have lost spouses, you remember the moment you found out. There are many people in this room who've lost children. You remember the moment you found out. You'll never forget it. God has imprinted it on your heart. And, and because of that, you can enter into this story because you know in some way what it is to be broken. You know in some way what it is to wake up as Naomi one day and your husband is gone and your children are gone. And I'll take it even a step deeper. Stay with me. I know I'm going a few minutes over, but we'll get through this. She not only lost her husband, she not only lost her sons, you need to see this in a way that we don't see this as Americans because in 2018, we have Social Security. We have ways in which the government can support us. She had no financial support whatsoever. She had no one to physically help her. She had no one to financially help her. She was absolutely desolate. She was completely decimated. She had nothing left. Feel the weight of that brokenness. We've all been there in some way. And when she hits that brokenness, she's got to turn somewhere. And that's where we'll get to verse 6 in a second. But before I get there, I want to say something about our brokenness. Death is inevitable for everyone in this room, and yet at the same time, it's unthinkable when it happens. We see with crystal clarity all the things in our future that may never happen. In my mind, I, I'll just admit this, there are some times during the week that I come behind this pulpit in complete silence when no one's here, and I can see the future of this church. I can see packed pews, a bigger sanctuary, a family life center, generations of kids in Candler County coming up knowing Jesus Christ. I can see with all clarity the dream that I have for the future of this church. And yet at the same time, that may never happen. Okay, that may never happen. We, uh, we see with clarity things that may never happen. But we never see what has been promised will happen. Death is inevitable, and yet it's unimaginable every time it happens. Naomi could not have seen when they moved to Moab that she was going to lose her husband and her two, two sons, but she did. And we'll see in, at the very conclusion here, she does turn to the Lord. But I want to ask you this. What, what happens for you when you get the phone call that you didn't want to get? When you get the knock at the door that you didn't want to get? When you get the doctor in the hallway giving you news you didn't want to hear? Where do you turn? 
because you're going to look for hope. You're hardwired to look for hope. It's part of that storyline, right? You're hardwired to look for a shining ray of light through a dark cloud. Even Mickey Mouse looks for it, right? We're all looking for it every single time we enter into pain. Where are you going to look? Let me tell you where Naomi looked real quickly. Number three, let's look at the pursuit of a broken woman. Verse six. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. You know, the story of of, uh, Naomi is almost like the prodigal son. She leaves the homeland thinking that happiness is further ahead for her in Moab than it is in, in Judah. And she finally comes to her senses when her family has died and she realized that she can't provide for herself. So she hears news that back in Judah, God's providing for his people again. And it's like the prodigal son who was on his hands and knees in the pigsty looking at what the pigs were eating and saying, that actually looks pretty good right now. I'm losing my mind. I need to go back home to daddy. Naomi decides to pick up her pieces and decides to go back home again to Judah. And she comes to her senses because she realizes only God can pick up those pieces. Only God can pick up those pieces. I believe it is in the darkest cloud where the light of God shines the brightest. The prodigal son came to his senses. Naomi came to her senses. We're called to come to our senses. And what I want to say is this as we draw to a close. Some of you need to come home. You may be living in Metter, Georgia. You may even be actively coming to worship at Cedar Street, but spiritually you're gone. You're not here. You may be physically in the seat, but 10 minutes ago you started thinking about lunch, not, not because there's anything sinful about thinking about lunch, but because your heart was never really here today. Your spirit hadn't been here in a long time. You're walking through the motions of Christianity. You know Monday through Saturday God is nowhere in your life. Can I tell you something? Come home. It's time to come home. It's time to stop playing games with God. It's time to stop making promises that you don't keep. God may have let you be broken so that you can see how desperately you need him. And it scares me to think about this in my own life. God may break me again and again and again, not because he doesn't love us, but precisely because he does. We never pay attention in the sunshine. We always pay attention in the rain. If you're, rain, if you're living in rain right now, come home. God loves you. He will restore you. He will forgive you. But you've got to come home. He will run to you like the father of the prodigal son. That's the main part of that story. He's not the son coming home. It's the father running to the son. He will run to you. But you've got to come home. You've got to come home. So it leads me to our conclusion. In one sentence, I would say as we come home, Jesus Christ is our Savior who became broken for us so that we might become whole in Him. None of us can ever say this, ever. You can never say when you are in the midst of pain and you pray to God, God, you don't understand. There's two reasons why you can never say that. One, even if Jesus never came to this earth, God is sovereign, which means He knows and understands all things. But number two, He uniquely understands in a relational way because he became one of us. And he became broken, not because he deserved it, but because we did. His body was broken on a cross, 
because he knew you were broken and if he wasn't broken for you, you could never be whole again. Jesus did for us which we could never do for ourselves. He met us at our moment of brokenness and through his death, resurrection, and ascension, he takes our broken pieces and puts them back together. As we enter into a time of invitation, let us remember we're just like Naomi. I don't care how old you are, if you're a child crying out in the dark at night, if you're a teenager who's crying over a broken heart, if you're a young adult who's crying over a job and a a marriage that doesn't bring you any fulfillment, or if you're a senior who's crying over the brokenness of your physical body, you're broken. But God loves to restore those who are broken. And if you've never put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, don't wait until rock bottom hits. And if you are at rock bottom right now, you may never have another chance to turn to Christ. Come to see Jesus. Come to give your life to Jesus. And come to realize whatever is broken, God can put it back together again through His Son. Let us pray. Father, again, as we study this book of Ruth, we see a beautiful, happy ending. But right now, we've got to just stay in the dark cloud for another moment. We need to remember what it's like to be Naomi. Maybe not exactly like she went through, Father, but in ways that we all know what it's like to be broken. We know what it's like to be abandoned. We know what it's like to just struggle. And you you do things in our lives and how quickly we forget them. And we make promises we can't keep. And Father, we stray. We so easy to stray from you, Father. So easy to stray. Father, I, I, I beg you on behalf of everyone in this room and the families they represent, bring us home. Help us not to stray from you. Where we have strayed, bring us back. Where we have sin, cleanse us. Where we are broken, make us whole through the blood of your Son. I pray today would be a day that we come home, Father. Let us come home. In Jesus' name. Amen.